Can you get so high you can predict your own destruction? Then we travel back to the 1500s to take a look at a satanic serial killer who cut a bloody swath across Europe. Is it possible that this madman actually had access to black magic that turned him into an unstoppable killing machine? Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are having tons of fun doing whatever you're doing. We got a lot of stuff to cover, so we're going to get started right away. First off, walking into Dead Rabbit Command is one of our newest Patreon supporters. Everyone get on your feet and give a round of applause for Flix is cool. Woohoo! Yeah, come on in. Come on in, Flix. You sure are cool. I guess you can't say he's not it's in his name Flix. you're gonna be our captain our pilot this episode if you guys can't support the patreon i totally get it just help spread the word about the show that really really helps out a lot now Flix, let's go ahead we're gonna start off by tossing you the keys to the dead rabbit dirigible we're gonna leave behind dead rabbit command we're headed all the way out to calabasas california in calabasas california there is a man A man who has it all. Wealth, fame, power. But just when you have all that stuff doesn't mean that you're happy. I mean, definitely those things can make you happier. But a lot of people still have that void. Why am I here? What is truly important to me? Who am I? So this man, he's 53 years old, begins to experiment with ayahuasca which is a very, very powerful hallucinogenic. They've used it in shamanic journeys for centuries, and now it's a brand new craze. If you can get a hold of some, you can do it yourself. You're supposed to have like a shaman there to help guide you, but you can just take it yourself. If you're famous enough, if you have enough money, you can just have the ayahuasca delivery service show up and be like, "Mm -mm -mm, I'm going to drink this all by myself. What could possibly go wrong? Now, this man said, listen, I've done ayahuasca up to 15 times. I'm experienced with it. But there was one time that I had such a hellish experience, it changed me. This man, he says that it takes about 45 minutes for the ayahuasca to kick in. So, he's a busy man. He's famous, right? He's wealthy. He has stuff to do. He goes, you drink the ayahuasca and... It's 44 minutes. It hasn't kicked in yet. Maybe I need more. So this guy basically double-dosed and might have triple-dosed because he kept waiting for it to kick in. He's like, oh, 44 minutes and 30 seconds. I'm still not high. Time for another sip of this ayahuasca. After the ayahuasca kicked in, because eventually it will, right? He's sitting in his mansion that he bought with the money that he earned coming up from the bottom, coming up from nothing. Everything this man has, he earned it. He spent his entire life working towards this goal. Working to be rich enough to take ayahuasca in a Calabasas, California mansion. He's sitting in his mansion and what happens is he starts to see his money floating through the house. He goes, wait a second, money's not supposed to do that. He's watching hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars and then millions of dollars just fly through the house like a tornado and it's just disappearing. 
he's trying to grab as many bills as he can, but each time he grabs one, it just completely fades away. And he's watching all of his wealth vanish. And then the mansion around him begins to fade from view. Now he is standing in a vacant lot. And his career disappears as well. I don't know how he visualized that. I don't know if he saw a newspaper and it's like, this guy sucks. But he starts to realize that his entire career, his wealth and his fame has just evaporated. He's standing there with nothing. And he built it. This wasn't a guy who was given anything. He built an empire. And he watched it disappear in front of him. He said that while he's sitting there in this state of utter loss, utter devastation, he's hallucinating that he's lost everything, his daughter walks into the room in real life. Not in the vision, because there is no room in the vision. The mansion's gone. She walks into the room in real life. I don't know what this guy was doing. I walk in the living room or something like that. He's like watching sports, and he's like, you know what, it's halftime. Time to take a psychedelic trip to the world's beyond. His daughter walks in and snaps him out of it. Dad, dad. And he said, I could hear her calling for me. And I stopped caring about everything that I had lost. I stopped caring about my career. All I wanted to do was to get back to my family. And then he had a really interesting quote to wrap this up. Quote, when I came out of it, I realized that anything that happens in my life, I can handle it. I can handle any person I lose. I can handle anything that goes wrong in my life. I can handle anything in my marriage. I can handle anything that this life has to offer me. Unquote. That man was Will Smith like a year or two before his career disintegrated on Oscar night. Will Smith, about four months ago, did an interview. I don't know when he actually did the drugs, but about four months ago, Will Smith was on David Letterman's Netflix show, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. It was just recently released, but it was recorded months before the Oscar night, so the ayahuasca journey, I don't think it happened right before the taping. He woke up and he's like, oh, wait, I got to get down to the show. So it had happened previous to this. So him watching his entire career disappear and losing all of his money and his home and everything like that. Was it a prediction? Like, it's so, it's really, really interesting. When he took the ayahuasca, did it basically show him the future? Because Will Smith is on the skids. He's had like two or three movies canceled because of this. He's banned from the Academy Awards for 10 years. And I know what all of us are thinking. <laughs> Who cares, right? We don't go to the Academy Awards. But his name is Mud. At this point, what happens is he really pissed off a lot of not just Chris Rock, right? Chris Rock just rolled with it and got 10 more years of material from it. The powerful people in Hollywood who take the Academy Awards super, super seriously. It was spinning on them. And I guarantee that for a long time when Will Smith goes out for a role, someone's going to get a phone call from some dude that we've never known, right? Some producer who has a lot of power and he's going to be like, don't hire him. That's going to go on for a long time. It's possible that Will Smith never makes another movie. That hidden network within Hollywood, they've shut him out. And all because he slapped a guy on camera. That was really it. He slapped a guy on camera at their most prestigious ceremony. 
So did the ayahuasca trip actually predict that his career was going to disappear? Because that's really what's happening. And it's interesting because we can always go, well, he's a millionaire. But we don't know people's standard of living. Like if you are a millionaire and you live in a mansion and you have all these fancy cars, you're assuming you're going to keep making millions of dollars each year. If someone just says that they earn $20 million a year, they may spend $40 million a year right, on credit and all this other stuff, because they assume I'm going to be in the business for another 10, 15, 20 years. Will Smith has been in the business since he was like 16. So why would he assume at 53 he was going to not make any money anymore? And he said before that was his worst fear, was going back to poverty. That's where he came from. And he built this empire, and then he slapped a dude, and he spit in the face of the, the powerful establishment of Hollywood. It humiliated them. And he is shut out. And I and, and the ayahuasca thing, like, did the ayahuasca predict that this was going to happen? Or did the ayahuasca, this journey, prepare him for it? Like, was there no way to prevent what was going to happen? Like, the stars were going to align in just the way that Will Smith was going to walk up and slap Chris Rock. And the ayahuasca journey was to say, you are going to lose your career very soon. And this is what it's going to feel like, and you better be prepared for it. Or, so it could have predicted something that couldn't be changed. It could have predicted something and tried to help him psychologically deal with it, because it couldn't be changed. Or was the ayahuasca there to prevent it? Not just predict but prevent was it showing him that you are at risk of losing everything. And when he comes out and says, I can handle any person I lose. I can handle anything that goes wrong in my life. I can handle anything in my marriage. I can handle anything that this life has to offer me. Will Smith, I love you. I love your work, but I don't know if that's true. Like you can say that, but Chris Rock made a joke about your wife and you couldn't handle it. Like, the ayahuasca journey was incomplete. Because I do believe... See, I don't do psychedelics at all. Because my grasp of reality is so tenuous already that I don't do anything that messes with my ability. I don't drink either. Like, I drink maybe two or three times a year. I don't do drugs because they affect my sense of reality way too much. I don't do psychedelics. But I do believe that they can open up pathways for you to see things. I'm not encouraging the use of psychedelics either. I don't want someone going, well, Jason said it. I'm going to eat all these mushrooms and drink all this ayahuasca. Maybe the journey wasn't complete. Maybe there was another lesson he had to learn. And when his daughter came in, she interrupted that spiritual journey. I feel bad for the guy. I feel bad for the guy. I think he was pushed to the limit and he went up and slapped this dude, but his career is over. Although I will say this, America always loves a good comeback story. So I'm hoping in the next five to 10 years, he has some great role. He comes back. He steals America's heart again. Will Smith is on top. I think that's what will happen. But he has to go the next five to 10 years without making the money he used to. Did the ayahuasca try to prevent that from happening or did it try to prepare him for the inevitable? And was there another lesson he needed to learn? But his spiritual journey was interrupted. I can handle anything this life has to offer me, but if it's someone insulting someone you love, you know, I'm not saying that if someone's trash-talking someone you love, you should let him get away with it, but 
it's fascinating story. It's a fascinating story, and I hope it ends well for Will and his family. Flix is cool. Let's go ahead and toss you the keys of the carpenter copter. We're leaving behind Calabasas, California. We are headed all the way out to the Palatinate. Flix is cool. Let's look at a map. He's like, I don't see any place known as the Palatinate. It's an area, nowadays we know it as France and Germany, but back in the 1500s, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire. We're headed back there to take a look at a man called Peter Nears. Some say he was a monstrous fiend. Other people just say he was a sick serial killer. Some people say the story's mostly true. Some people say there's a lot of folk tales in it, a lot of fables. But really the difference between the true version and the fables is how many hundreds of people did he murder? Did he murder 200? Did he murder 300? Whatever the, whatever the number historians want to agree on, it's a lot. And I got to give a thanks to Fabio. He's the person who sent this story over. Always sending over fantastic stuff. Fabio, longtime listener of Dead Rabbit Radio. I appreciate it very, very much. Back in the 1500s, this is so fascinating. You talk about like a subculture, right? You had robbers. Robbers have been around since the beginning of time. But when villages started to become towns, when you started to have people really, really protect the things that they love, their family and their gold, it wasn't enough for a single robber to jump out with a dagger. I mean, that might work in a big city, because there's a lot of other places you can hide. You can assassin creed up a wall, and then jump in a pile of hay, and no one will see you. But for the most part, you would do some of that, but for the most part, you got better odds if you attacked people in a group. And that makes sense. I mean, today we have the gang, right? You you can get mugged by a person, but it's far more easy to have three people go into a liquor store than just one. But because the penalty for theft, for robbery, was death, if you got caught, you knew you were going to die, they killed indiscriminately. If they stole your stuff, it's not like nowadays when someone comes up to you and is like, give me your chains, you give them your chains, you give them your wallet, <laughs> they didn't ask for the wallet, you're just being polite. And then they'll hopefully leave you alone, right? Most of the time, they're just going to take your stuff and leave because they're a robber. They're a stick-up man. They're not a murderer. And the penalty for robbery is, what, a couple years if you get caught. It might even be a misdemeanor if you plead down to something. But if the, th if the death penalty is on the table, if you're going to die, you're going to kill any witnesses. So these groups of marauding robbers would waylay stagecoaches, any travelers in between cities. These are the most dangerous places. And what's interesting is in this time period, shepherds were basically considered a step above a robber. I want to even say barely a step. They were right next to them. People hated shepherds because they believed, and rightfully so, this happened a lot, the shepherds would migrate from area to area and they were out by themselves and they would know the lay of the land. So in between the villages, in between the cities, the shepherds would know all of the secret passages, all of the back roads, all of the little gullies you could run down. And so basically, if you were a shepherd, you were basically considered a criminal. Like, people knew that there had to be shepherds out there. But it didn't help there's a lot of these robbers who disguise themselves as shepherds. Or they would be shepherds on the times they're not robbing. Like in between big jobs, 
They'd just be, they'd go back to their sheep. The sheep are like, oh, we were wondering when we were coming back. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm here. I love you guys. And then he sees like a stagecoach going down the road. And he's like, oh, sorry, guys. I got to go to the store to get some cigarettes. And they're like, not again. There's this quote from a novel in 1554 talking about shepherds. This is how they thought of them. Quote, far from civilized society and alone with the animals. He has time to think over his misdeeds. Members of such a group were unsurprising suspects, unquote. So the story of Peter Nearest takes place during this reign of criminals, just these mobs that would waylay travelers and do these huge heists, and then they would break up into smaller groups and then travel around. <laughs> they'd get their sheep together, they'd ride them around like little ponies, and then they would go to the next job. And then if they heard, hey, the king's moving all this gold through this area, they would start to group up again. So you might be facing down 30 of these guys. taking. And we see parallels to this, like the train robbers in the American West and the pirates, right? You have these huge, you needed a group of pirates. You couldn't have one guy on a pirate ship, it wouldn't work. But you have these gangs. But the story of Peter Nears, the reason why it stands out is that he is also associated with the darkest of dark magics. Peter Nears was more than just a standard robber slash serial killer. He was a cannibal. And he was a master of magic. And this is where people go, okay, the fables, the historians are like, we don't know how much of this is true. Like, as a historian, I'm not officially saying he's a magician, but a lot of people claimed that he did have powers. And it's interesting when we look at his career. He was, at, he was active for quite a long time, quite a few years, but in 1577, he was caught along with other members of this gang. And he was caught, he was tortured, and he confessed to killing 75 people. But he escaped. He got out of jail. The rest of his gang was caught. They were all executed, but he got out. And that is really, like, obviously people already thought this guy had access to some ritual magic because they could. it took him long enough to catch him this first time. But escaping from a jail when he was definitely under heavy guard, they knew who this guy was, made people really think this, the stories of his powers might not be exaggerated. One of the stories that does seem pretty folkloric is that he and his gang had a meeting with the devil himself. They called upon the devil and said, hey... We're those shepherds that have been <laughs> killing all those people. You love our work? And the devil's like, ah, the shepherd thing's a little boring, but I love the murders. And the devil gave his blessing to Peter Nears. And this is dope. I didn't know devils did this stuff. I didn't know Satan did this stuff. Apparently, not only did he give his blessing to Peter Nears, he gave him a monthly paycheck. Which my question immediate is, how much? Like, it's the devil, right? Any amount would be way too low. He has access to all the riches. If he was giving him $10,000 a month, I'd still be like, come on, devil. Come on. You're like, you're like a little bit more. A little bit more, buddy. So he always had money on him. And that was actually, there was a few things that you could always know that you had Peter Nears in your company. Because people were looking for this guy. Right? He's killing a bunch of people. He'd been arrested. They had descriptions of him from survivors, and they had descriptions of him when he was arrested. And he was described as being a very old man who had a long scar down his chin. He had two crooked fingers, and he always had money on him. Which is where I think part of the devil's allowance is coming from, right? 
A thief, you would imagine, <laughs> the reason why you're a thief is because you need money. It would be odd that a thief would always have money on him, but that was one of the call signs of Peter Nears. He always had money on him. He also, they say he also, he always had the money on him. He also had two loaded pistols hidden in his pants, and he carried around a huge two-handed sword. So you would think, this guy, you should be really easy to pick this guy out of crowd, right? He's the guy who can't walk right because he's afraid he's going to blow his kneecaps off. He's constantly carrying around this giant sword like it's out of a video game. But apparently, despite this stuff, he has pockets full of gold like Scrooge McDuck, two loaded pistols, and this giant sword. He was a master of disguise. Now, some people say it was the magic that did it. Some people say that he could turn into a rock. He could turn into a log. If you were pursuing him, you'd go into a forest and he'd be gone. And if they had only looked down, they would have seen a hollowed out log with a human face on it going, <laughs> and then it's full of gold and there's two pistols lying next to it and a giant sword sticking through it. He could turn into a rock. He could turn into a log. He could turn into a cat or a dog or other popular things of his shape-shifting abilities. What historians believe is they actually believe that he wasn't a shapeshifter because normal historians don't believe in that stuff. They believe he was a master of disguise. They believe that the, because he had mentors, right? He wasn't the first guy to do any of this stuff. There were people doing this long before him, and he was joining these gangs, and he was learning from other people. They believe that his mentors taught him how to disguise himself. And they believe and this would actually work. This would totally work. He would disguise himself as either a foot soldier, just a dude walking around in armor. I don't know if it was like an, a suit of armor, but you know what I mean? Like He would dress like just a common soldier who would totally just fit in. It wouldn't fit in today, right? If you saw a guy walking down the street in chain mail, you're like, uh, I think I'm going to call the cops. But back then, it wouldn't be odd. You'd just think it was a foot soldier or mercenary passing through. Especially if you were in a big city, you wouldn't think anything of it. The other disguise that he would often use, and this one's genius, he would be a leprosy victim. Which people would just stay away from him. People would just stay away from him. So that would explain why people thought he was a master of disguise. He actually could just disappear. They don't explain how a leprosy victim is walking around with a giant two-handed sword and not getting any attention, but apparently it worked. Because he was unstoppable. And because there were these whispered rumors of cannibalism and his connection to dark magic, they started to believe that his powers must be coming from somewhere. Not just the devil. He must be doing something really despicable. Because they're coming across these crime scenes and people are just destroyed. People aren't just killed. They're ravaged. They're mutilated. So the stories start to pop up that Peter Nears must have access to some unholy objects. We did an episode a long time ago about the Hand of Glory. I'll put that episode in the show notes. It was an early one. And it was one of these old thief techniques where you would take a human hand, if I remember correctly, you would take a human hand and you'd have to repair it in some way, and you would light the fingers one by one, and everyone in the house would fall asleep, and then you could just burgle the house and be in and out, and no one would ever know. That was a really cool episode, although that one of the show notes. So people knew about relics like that, but they didn't know if that's what Peter Nears was using. Some people believed that that was it, but it turns out his artifact was far more terrifying. In 1581, in Neumarkt, which is modern-day Bavaria, Germany, 
our, our protagonist, our protagonist, Peter Nears, is staying at an inn called The Bells. He's there for a couple days, and no one knows it's him, right? There's posters of him all over town, but no one knows it's him, his master of disguise. He's at the inn for a couple days, and he goes, you know what, I've been here for a couple days in this town. It's time for a bath. There's not a bath in his room, because it's old-timey stuff, so he had to go to the public bath. And he's walking out there, and he's like... I'm going to be completely naked, so I don't know what type of disguise I'm wearing, but I think I'll be fine. I don't think anyone's going to catch me. Well, he gets in there, and yeah, you can't wear a disguise. You can't be a soldier or a leprosy victim in a public bath. I guess you could have leprosy, but I don't think they'd let you in. So he's in there, and people start to talk. It's crazy. Before photographs or anything, you just went off of a drawing. People started saying, I think that's Peter Nears. I think that's Peter Nears. At this point, he had been active for 15 years. People have been looking for this guy. So two people snuck out of the bathhouse undetected, and they found out what inn he was staying in. You know, it's a small town, and when a stranger shows up with a two-handed sword, everyone's going to know what inn he's at. That's what inn he's at, and they go see the innkeeper, and they said, Hey, what, you know anything about that weirdo who just came into your inn a couple days ago? <laughs> he was smelly, for one. He hadn't had a bath in a couple days. And innkeeper goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy, he actually gave me this bag for safekeeping. And the two people are like, dude, we gotta look at this. We gotta look in this bag. Like, it's either full of, like, cotton or tulips or it'll be proof that Peter Nears is at the public bathhouse. So they take the bag and they open it up. And what they find is a bag of fetus hearts and hands. <laughs> I don't know why adding the hands on makes it even worse. It would be bad enough if it was just a bag full of fetuses, right? Sorry, Flix is cool. It's like throwing up in the corner. Sorry you're on this episode. If someone had a bag of fetuses, that would be pretty bad. I wouldn't be like, well, at least it's not the hearts. It's just babies. It's just their little fetuses in there. You open up the bag, and there was a bunch of fetuses in there. You'd still call them the cops. But fetus hearts is awful. And then the hands is just kind of gross because you'd recognize those. I don't know if I'd recognize like a little fetus heart, right? They look in the back and they're like, uh, we, expect, we expected to find two guns and a bunch of gold. We didn't expect to find a bag of baby hearts. So they go to the constable and they're like, just believe us. We're going to tell you a story. Just believe what we're saying. Don't look in the bag. And the constable's like, I kind of got to look in the bag. And they're like, uh... You don't, you're not going to want to look in the bag. But anyway, so the constable rounds up a bunch of people. They go into the bathhouse and they arrest him. And he's then tortured for quite a while. And he ends up confessing. People don't know if this number is accurate. This is what he con confessed to under torture. And people go, you know, people say a lot of stuff under torture. He confessed to 544 murders. Those are the ones he admitted. Which either means he exaggerated it, or he did way more than that, and he was too embarrassed to talk about those ones. 544 murders. I mean, nowadays, obviously, that's still an astounding number, but back then, there were villages that didn't have 544 people living in them. Insane. So, like all good medieval stories, this one ends with the good old-fashioned torture. Day one, you're like, okay, I'm just trying to I'm shutting the podcast off. I should have shut it off after the fetus hearts. Is he really going to read out the tortures? Day one. It was September 13th, 1581. Day one. They 
here, and I'm going to say this too. People always get so pissed off. I get like angry emails and YouTube comments when I say this. I think this is exaggerated. This is what news reports said at the time in like wood carvings, but I think it was propaganda. I did an episode about a guy who was strapped down to a hot burning throne and his skin was pulled off inch by inch. And I was like, that's impossible. That's fake. Here's why it's fake. A bunch of people were like, no, you're fake. You're fake. Don't say the torture's not real. I don't know who's defending the torture. I don't know who wants it to be real. I'm pretty sure it's fake. So let's take a look at this. Day one, his flesh is torn from his body. Not all of it. Just some of it, right? They got another two days to do. There's three days of tortures. Day one, they tore some flesh from his body and they poured heated oil on his wounds. Okay. I'm not saying, okay, like that's okay. He's like, boring. When's the real torture start? I'm saying you could survive that. That's torture. So that was the first day, right? And I don't think they did it for all day. They probably It probably took them an hour to do that. They pulled off some skin, poured some oil on him, and then the executioner's like, when's lunch? Then it's day two. So like, what, did they just send him back to the cell? And he's like, ow, ooh, ah, ooh, ow. I have this hot oil on my skin. Day two, total de-escalation, right? Day one, they tear his skin off and pour hot oil on his skin. Day two, they take his feet, which are still attached to him, and they put heated oil on him. They're like rubbing it on. I imagine it's like that red spicy oil from like a Thai restaurant. He's all yummy, yummy, yummy. I am a cannibal after all. Mm -mm -mm, I'm going to eat them feet. They held his feet over hot coals, not even a fire. They couldn't even afford like logs and stuff for this. They held his feet over hot coals and his feet roasted because he had like on the hot oil, and then they held it over hot coals. Here's my question against all your torture aficionados. One, who was holding his feet over the, the hot coals? They're getting burned up, too. <laughs> they accidentally spilled some heated oil on their hand. They're like, oh, I hope I don't want to get cooked. And they're like, hey, can you hold his other foot? You're like, no! Like, someone has to be holding him over the hot coals. Two, why didn't they use a fire? Why is it just hot coals? Three, he's a cannibal! This is super delicious to him! He's loving it! Even though it's painful, like, all those little cartoon wavy lines are coming up, the scent's coming up from his feet. Mm-mm-mm. Day three. I was so disappointed in day three, because I had to look up something that I always thought was real, and it's not... Well, it's real, but... Day three... They drag him to the place of execution, which at that point, I mean, he can't feel anything, really. He's been all burned up and stuff like that. But they're like, oh, let's get him all dirty. They drag him to the place of execution, and he is broken on the wheel. So I always thought, I'd see pictures of this, right? It was, it's a giant wheel. And I always thought that they tied you to the wheel. And then, <laughs> I thought this. I mean, if you said broken on the wheel... You tie someone to a wheel, and then you roll it down a hill. They're like, wee, ouch, wee, ouch, wee, ouch, and they're getting crushed. Kids are like, oh, Ma, can I murder someone so I can be broken on the wheel? Not today, Johnny. But I imagined, shocker of shocks, that the wheel did a wheel-like motion to kill you. Do you know what it means to be broken on a wheel? This is so stupid. When you are broken on the wheel, this is what they did to Peter Nears. They dragged him across the dirty city to his place of execution, tied him to the ground, and then dropped the wheel on him. That's what they do. They pick a wheel up, a giant wheel, and they drop it on him. And then they pick it back up, and then they drop it on him. And then they pick it back up, and they drop it on him. What? You can do that with it. You don't even have to use a wheel. You can use a bat, or a sledgehammer, or something, or a boot. Why build a giant wheel if it's not going to do a wheel-like thing? I guess eventually, sometimes... 
They'll, if your bones are all busted up, but you're still alive, they'll pick up your body. And then they'll like put, they'll like thread your arms into the wheel. So like your arms all busted up. People are like, dude, you're doing this podcast for no one at this point. Your arms are all busted up and they'll thread it through the wheel. So you'll be hanging there from the wheel. And then guess what? They beat you up. They beat you up. They beat you up as you're there. And then you die. At no point could I find a hilarious death. At no point could I find someone being tied to a wheel and then it rolling down a hill. Maybe at some point people are getting tied to water wheels and they were drowning and then getting a little bit of air and drowning and get a little bit of air. I'm not saying I want advancement in torture technology, but if you're going to call something broken on the wheel, it should do a wheel thing, right? So very disappointed. They did. He's not disappointed. He's dying very slowly. They dropped this wheel on him 42 times. And he still lived. Shows how inefficient dropping a wheel on someone is. He was eventually quartered by horses and he died. That's the story of Peter Nears. Probably one of the most prolific serial killers in history. The reason why we don't really classify him as a serial killer because it was a side job. His main thing was robbing people. The killing was just to cover up the robbery. That normally doesn't get classified as a serial killer. Back then... That term didn't exist, but on a paranormal aspect, let's wrap the episode up like this. I find it so fascinating that we spend so much time pressuring the Air Force and the Pentagon for information about UFOs. But we never stop to ask police officers and FBI agents about their encounters with the paranormal in the field. Never. I'm sure there are beat police officers working the streets and FBI agents investigating crimes, and they come to something that they cannot believe. It's so unbelievable they can't even put it in their report. Because they would get laughed out of a job. Same reason why pilots weren't talking about UFOs for 50, 60, 70 years. And still a lot don't do it today. So if you had a police officer chasing down a thief... The thief runs around the corner, the officer runs around the corner, and the thief is gone. He's going to assume the thief just got away, right? He's going to call in backup, maybe call in a helicopter, depending on, you know, the severity of it and how much of a risk this guy is to the community. But what if an officer actually saw a suspect vanish from him, right in front of him, disappear, turn invisible? Because this thief had access to a bag of black magic, a bag of fetus hearts. <laughs> I thought you were done with that part. This magic, if it's real, it's not like it would have worked up until the 1500s and then someone goes, ah, it doesn't work anymore. If it worked up to the 1500s, it would work today. And these secrets would still be taught in thieves' guilds. These would be passed down in prisons from an old criminal to a younger one who has time to get out. These dark secrets could be still used today. Invisibility spells, shape-shifting spells. Deals with the devil not for fame and fortune, but to be their ally on earth. To spread chaos for material gain. We don't know how to call these beans forth, or we don't know specifically what ingredients need to go in this bag, or we don't know the incantation to turn into a rock or a log or a cat. But someone does. 
And secrets like that would be passed down over the generations. If these spells worked in the 1500, as disgusting as they are, a bag of fetus hearts. If that worked back in the 1500s, it would work today. And if a police officer was chasing a suspect, and that suspect notices that the cop is about to get him, and he reaches into a little pouch, and then suddenly he's gone. Right in front of the officer, completely disappears. That would 100% go unreported. The officer would never put that in a police statement. He would just say, I lost them. And so there could be these tools still out there. There could be a crime wave. And we've covered a lot of stuff like this. A crime wave using black magic to get away from law enforcement. Just because it's an old-timey tale doesn't mean every element of it is false. In fact, the opposite's true. If it worked back then, it would work today. And we would never know it. It would never be revealed to us. There may someday be disclosure about the UFO phenomenon, but there will never be disclosure about the way that dark forces interact with our daily life. It's not a light in the sky. It's a broken car window. Or a gun in your face. A crime wave. Fueled. By black magic. A crime wave. That continues from generation. To generation. To generation. The criminals may change. But the crimes don't. Murder is what the devil demands. And murder is what the devil gets. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.